<coughs> as Steve said, um, I, I'm finishing up a, a program, and the program that I um, am doing, it's in biblical spirituality. Uh, and the reason why it's called that is spirituality today means all sorts of things, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to. And so to put that phrase, the word biblical in front, just means, okay, we want to define spirituality according to what the Bible says, biblical spirituality, not what, you know, Buddha or Gandhi say, but what the Bible says. So it's biblical spirituality. Um, and I was just curious last night, so I typed into YouTube spirituality to see what would happen. And apparently, Jim Carrey is an authority on spirituality. He was number four on the front page of the hits. Um, a lot of, you know, interesting stuff. But did you know that Jim Carrey is a Christian and a Buddhist and a Muslim and whatever you want him to be? And that's, he said that. That's a near quote. Um, that's the spirituality of our age. Everybody's spiritual. Nobody believes anything. Um, and so <coughs> as we think about spirituality, we need to go to the Bible and define it biblically. If you uh, go into a typical church and say, define spirituality, you're probably going to get a lot of responses saying, well, it's having a good relationship with Jesus, or some kind of, you know, word about relationship with Jesus, which is, okay, that's, that's fine, but what does relationship with Jesus mean? If we were to ask that, I, I didn't do a search on that. But if you were to think about relationship with Jesus, what comes to your mind? Um, being a teacher here at Grace for the last eight years, um, this last August, as Steve mentioned, I moved over to the church side, but I've been teaching here at Grace for eight years. And just through conversations with students and, and just trying to get to know people, I would say, just from my experience, not from any official survey, but I think the most common response of students, and I think this is just our culture, <coughs> if you were to say, how would you define a relationship with Jesus? The most typical response of, of even, you know, the, the kids that we would call spiritual or spiritually minded or um, pursuing God, most of them would say, Jesus is my best friend. And that's how they see themselves in relationship to Jesus is, he's my best friend. Which is a great truth. And everything I say is not meant to take away from that truth. I want to put that truth in perspective, though, and define it biblically. That's what we are um, about here. And so I actually got an opportunity to, to, to give this message last year in chapel. So if you were there last year, um, this is a modification of that. But as I was going through last year and even this year again, my goodness, there is, there is, there is a richness here and a depth in these truths we need to think about and, and really let sink into our lives. It's a familiar topic that I'm going to talk about, but it's, it doesn't reach to the depth that it needs to in my life, and I would challenge you to consider if it does in your own. So <clears throat> Jesus does call his disciples friends once, and that's, like I said, it's a glorious truth, and, and we need to, to honor Jesus' words when he called his disciples friends that one time. But my question is, why is that the defining um, relationship word? We'll get into that a little bit as we go. God is very relational. He's a trinity. And um, if you think about it, Father, Son, Spirit, they are in relationship with each other. Before anything ever was, except for God, God was relational. God was never lonely. He always had the trinity in himself. And so God is relational. He walked with Adam in the garden. He called out a people, Israel, to be his people, his chosen people. 
Um, Jesus, when he was incarnated, he walked the earth again, you know, God with us, Emmanuel. So God is very relational. But the phrase relationship with God is not in the Bible. <clears throat> and so we've got to be careful how we define it. It's okay to use the phrase, just let's define it biblically. And um, if it's, there's a lot of relationship words. There's child, father, there's king, subjects, there's members, or members of Christ, we are his body, um, members of the body, he's the head, sheep, shepherd, vine branches. There's all these relational metaphors and, and realities that, that the Bible uses to describe our relationship. Um, bridegroom, bride, they're, they're all over the place. A friend is in there. But which one is primary is, is the question that we're going to address today. Which one should dominate our thinking as we think about our relationship to Jesus Christ? And I'm going to show you that the dominant metaphor is actually slavery to Christ as our master. That Jesus is Lord means more, I think, than most of us realize. Um, and so my goal this morning is to convince you that the Bible defines your relationship to Jesus Christ primarily as his slave. And we're going to look at some, um, some of the context of slavery in Jesus' day and the Roman slavery. We're not going to spend much time on Old Testament slavery. Um, there, there's a whole lot there as well. But <clears throat> that's my goal. So it's a very weighty message that I want um, to just to help you sink in this truth that Jesus is Lord, I am his slave, and he is my master. And so to start, I want to define the word, doulos, commonly um, translated in your Bibles as servant. Um, but much of the historical background um, comes from this book called Slave by John MacArthur. He wrote a book just kind of exploring. It's basically an extended word study. Um, he also wrote about it, and it's probably a more well-known book, The Gospel According to Jesus, which we also have in our bookstore. Um, and so I'm going to be, i got a few books up here I'll be promoting. So The Gospel According to Jesus, he spends a lot of time on what it really means, again, the relationship with Jesus, biblically speaking. So um, in, in probably the foremost dictionary of New Testament Greek, they give the definition of doulos, or servant, this way. It is used exclusively either to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. It's a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it. It's a service which he has to perform whether he likes it or not because he's a subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. And right off the bat, you think, well, how come if it's called doulos, if it's slave exclusively, how come it's translated servant in our Bible? It's a good question. There's history of the English translation when... The, Bible was first translated into English, the word slave was usually referring to somebody in prison who was in chains. So back in the day, sure, maybe slave wouldn't have worked, and so servant was a better word. Okay, whatever. Now we know, and we have history, and we, we should start thinking, when we read about being a servant of Christ, we need to put this truth there. Even though the word servant is there, we need the idea and the concept of slavery now, that's a hard word, but we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> doulos, this is not, this is uh, MacArthur now. Doulos speaks of slavery, pure and simple. It describes someone lacking personal freedom and personal rights whose very existence is defined by his service to another. This is total, unqualified submission to the control and the directives of a higher authority. Slavery, not merely service at one's own discretion. 
And if you think about it, you might ask, so, does that really matter? Servant, slave, okay, whatever. Well, yeah, it does matter. Um, there's a difference between slavery and service. I think, when I think of servant, I often think of a butler. That's kind of the typical thing that my brain goes to in our culture, or maybe a waiter at a restaurant or something like that. But they have a choice whether they serve that person or not, and there's freedom. And we live in this country, right, where independence is so valued and whatnot. So does it really matter? Well, yeah, it really does. It really changes um, the emphasis of this word and this concept. For example, the first time Jesus uses the slavery analogy or, or metaphor is in Matthew 6:24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you think about it, <clears throat> you kind of can. <laughs> I mean, you can give some of your money to God, and you can keep some for yourself, and you can waste some, and you can, you can serve God and money. You can have two jobs. You can work one job Sunday to Wednesday and another job Thursday to Saturday. That's not impossible. What's Jesus saying? If I have two bosses, I don't despise one of them. Well, that's because servanthood is not what Jesus is talking about here. If you put in the word slave, as it literally should be, and the, the Holman Christian Center Bible is a translation that actually does put the word slave in there, um, and there's been talk about fixing the ESV as well in a later edition, but um, this is the more literal. No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense, because slavery implies ownership. One of them owns you, God or money. It's not that you can kind of do a little bit. No, it's all or nothing. And you lose that aspect of the all or nothing if you, if you trade that word service for slavery. And so that's what I'm trying to, to get across is the all or nothing nature of our relationship to Jesus as Lord. And so, yes, it does matter that we understand slavery is used as the dominant relational um, word to describe our relationship with Jesus. And so biblical usage of doulos and its Hebrew equivalent, um, Hebrew was written in, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, um, the New Testament was written in Greek, doulos is a Greek word, but the Hebrew equivalent for the word servant or slave is used 250 times applying to believers. So that slave metaphor relationship word is there in the Old Testament. <clears throat> in the New Testament, 40 times, which is much shorter than the Old Testament, 40 times it's applied to believers, 30 times as an illustration of the Christian life. So 70 times this word doulos or slave is used to describe Christians in the New Testament, 250 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. But if you think about it, why in our culture I mean, yeah, we say Jesus is Lord, but really, we kind of just kind of sweep this metaphor under the rug and say, Jesus is my friend. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a true, I mean, he did say that once, but 70 times in the New Testament, he says um, that we are his slaves. And so my goal, like I said, is just to, to put these relationship words in their proper context. There's lots of different words, and this is one of them. So don't now take what I'm saying out of balance from the others, um, but this is just a study on this particular concept. <clears throat> and the word kurios, the Greek word, or Lord, in reference to Jesus, that's, that's the, the slave and Lord 
every time the word Lord is used in reference to Jesus as Lord, it's the slavery imagery again. That's slave talk. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you, you, you're saying he's, you're his slave. Now, maybe you didn't realize that, but, but that needs to be in our minds. Before the resurrection, the word is used 250 times of Jesus, but it's kind of a mixed usage, much like Spanish, where the word Señor could mean just sir or mister, or it could mean, you know, el Señor, the Lord. We, we have that in Spanish. We, we lost that in English, but it's like that in Greek. So in the Gospels, when people would call Jesus Lord, it could be just like saying, hey, sir, or, you know, teacher, that kind of thing, just a respectful address. So it's kind of hard to tell exactly if they understood his lordship or not. Some of them yes, some of them no. So it's, like I said, mixed usage. But after the resurrection, every time, when Jesus is Lord, it means capital L, slave master, God of the universe, Lord, um, in the way that we need to come to grips with. 460 times. And he calls his disciples friends once. And he calls himself Lord 500 times. (laughs) Why is our culture so stuck on being friends with Jesus? Well, I mean, it's kind of obvious if you think about it. If my friend tells me to do something I don't want to, I just say I don't want to. I think think part of it, we don't do that on purpose. We don't say, well, Jesus, I want to be your friend, so I don't have to do what you say. You don't do that consciously, but if you think about it, in the heart, isn't that as a culture, isn't that kind of how we got there? I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and also, anytime redemption language, we've been redeemed. We sing it. It's, it's all over the place in the Bible. Redemption language is slave talk. We've been bought with the price. You're not your own. That's slave talk. We are slaves of Christ. So glorify God in your body. Um, it's all over the place in the Bible. And I think we miss it culturally, and I think um, it, it's very important to, to get out there. And so, as I'm talking about, wait a minute, slavery, that's, that's such a horrible thing, and, and what about being adopted by God? We're children of God. What do you mean slave? I'm a child, right? Where's, where's this slave talk coming from? Well, good, that's a good objection, if you're thinking. That's hopefully where you were already. And that comes, it's, that also, by the way, that option is a very dominant um, reality in the New Testament. Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So how come all there is a slave stuff? Well, let's look at the context real quick. Romans 1, Paul introduces himself as a slave of Christ. Romans 6, the whole chapter is devoted to slavery to sin versus slavery to God, which is just a couple chapters before this. So slavery to fall back into fear, is that not slavery to sin? It's not, sla- it's not talking about you're not a slave of Jesus anymore. That's not what it means. Um, Romans 6 is, is the very near context. Romans 12, don't be slothful and zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. These, this word serve is actually the word slave. It's just, this is what I'm telling you, the translational difference. Whenever you see it in yellow, the word serve, it means slave. I fixed it in the, in the Romans 1.1. Whoever thus serves or slaves for Christ is acceptable to God. Such persons, talking about divisive people, do not serve or slave for our Lord Christ. So the adoption reality doesn't undo the lordship reality. Don't mix your metaphors more than the Bible does. It mixes them, but don't, don't get that confused. And if you go back to Romans 1, 7, 
It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got to remember that God is Trinity. There is Father, there is Son. The Father is our Father. And we can call him Abba Father. We can approach the throne of grace. All those wonderful truths that I'm not talking about today. But there's another truth in play, that Jesus is Lord. Just because God is our Father doesn't mean that Jesus is not our Lord, that we're not slaves of his. So keep those separate. Have that in, informed in your mind. Another book, Communion with God. John Owen, he's a Puritan. Um, he talked about communion with God in the Trinitarian sense, kind of separating out the Father and the Son and the Spirit and how we relate to each and whatnot. Um, this is on order in the bookstore. <clears throat> and so um, that's a good resource uh, to commune with God in the Trinitarian sense. <clears throat> um, and the second objection, so the adoption objection, there's no objection. We're talking about two different things here. Both are true. In their context, rejoice in both and embrace both. It's not one or the other. It's both in context. We need to be biblical about how we relate to God. And second objection, probably more common, is the, whoa, 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 Jesus called his disciples friends once. Yeah, okay, let's read that verse. This is the, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends. All right. Friends of God, there it is. Never mind, we're done, right? No, that's not, we've got to read the rest of the verse. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends if I'm your Lord. You're my friends if you obey me, slaves. I love you, slaves, who I call friends. I'm going to die for you. You're my friends. I'm telling you what I'm going to do, but you're still my slaves. And you can't, you can't mess that up. Um, it's something I was... Learning as a teacher, never quite mastered, but learning as a teacher this truth. I, I want to relate to my students. I want to be their friends. But as I was learning, especially in the last few years, they can only be my friends if they do what I say. Otherwise, it's chaos, which we had enough of in my classes. But um, <laughs> is this truth applied now to your relationship with Jesus? You can, parents to your children, you want to be your kids' friends, right? Well, yeah, as long as they obey you. But if they don't obey you, you're not their friend. You're their parent. And that's kind of what, it's, it's that same, th there's, there's a lot more there with the parent-child, master-slave. I mean, that's a whole separate uh, comparison. But <clears throat> you are my friends. Yes, absolutely wonderful, glorious truth that Jesus calls his disciples friends. But there's a condition. <laughs> if you do what I say, you've got to remember that Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, he's not calling you his friend. The verse goes on. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. So you're not slaves anymore. Well, no, hold on. Let's finish the verse. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I'm telling you. Not only is there a condition, there's also a, context, a very specific context. Is that this is how we are friends. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Slaves, slave masters don't tell their slaves what's going on. They just tell them what to do. Slaves do it. That's how slave master-slave relationship works. Jesus says, no. I'm going to call you my friends, but only in this way. First, you've got to do what I say, but secondly, I'm, you're, I'm going to call you my friends in that I'm going to tell you what the Father is telling me. So it's a very specific context, this one time that Jesus calls his disciples friends. It's a glorious truth. Again, don't misunderstand me. It's not the dominant truth. So if you think of Jesus primarily as your best friend, I would suggest you spend some time studying this idea of Jesus as Lord. 
And, and you don't need to reject that Jesus is your best friend. I hope he is your best friend. But I hope he's your Lord first. <clears throat> or else he's not your friend, according to this verse. <clears throat> um, and the broader context, this is the only time I already said this, and nowhere in the Bible do Jesus' disciples call themselves friends. So if you say, I am a friend of God, there's, there's a truth there, a nugget of truth, but nobody in the Bible says that about themselves. So you can say it, but I'm going to be really careful because the Bible authors don't ever call themselves a friend of God by saying God is my friend. So I'm just saying, <laughs> how biblical do we want to be in our relationship to God? But some context here as well with, with John, who was Jesus' best friend um, on earth. There's reasons I could show you later if you want. But he calls himself, in Revelation 1.1, John wrote Revelation 1.1, he calls himself a slave of Christ. And um, <clears throat> we're not going to take the time to turn there, but when John sees the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is called Revelation, um, Jesus, John was Jesus' best friend on earth. He was in the inner circle. He was the closest friend that Jesus had. You might think that John would see Jesus and say, Jesus, I haven't seen you for, what, it's been almost 60 years. How's it going? You know, high five. You're my buddy, right? Best friend. No. Revelation 117 says that when John saw Jesus, he fell on his face like he was dead. <laughs> like, just flat on his face. Jesus' best friend falls flat on his face when he sees him. I love the song, I Can Only Imagine. Great song, great words, great theology behind it. You don't have to imagine what you're going to do when you see Jesus. <laughs> I forget exactly how the phrase goes, you know, will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you, be so, I think. You'll be like John, his best friend, and be on, on your face before him as a dead person, just stunned at the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus. That's what you're going to do. Now, imagine, keep imagining, um, but that's an amazing truth. If Jesus' best friend did that, how much more are we going to do that? And in um, Revelation, Jesus calls his followers slaves. So just because he called them friends doesn't mean he still doesn't call them slaves. <clears throat> and there's another passage. Jesus, even though he calls the disciples friends once, remains a Lord to be obeyed, not a colleague to be befriended. And I would just challenge us in our independent American, Alaskan culture, are you defining your relationship to Jesus biblically or culturally? Um, and that's, that's kind of the overarching question here. So question, or objection three, slavery is just an ugly thing. And it is. Um, there's a, a, a one thing I want to say, though. When we think of slavery, we think of American sla historical slavery. When the Bible talks about slavery, it talks about the Roman slavery. There's a lot of similarities, probably more similar than not. But... The American slave trade took something that was awful and made it far worse. So as we look back to the slavery imagery, let's just set aside all the horrors of the American slave trade. Let's not talk about that right now. <clears throat> let's go back to Roman slavery, which was bad. It was still a despised institution, but it wasn't as bad. It was still bad, still awful, so horrible. When Jesus called his followers slaves, there would be the same kind of reaction, but we kind of have it, we don't quite understand because of the, the context, but just keep that in mind as we go. We're talking about Roman slavery, which is bad, <clears throat> but not quite as bad as um, what the American slave trade did. 
to slavery. Um, all right, so I gotta rush through this so I can get to the end. The end is the <clears throat> the best part. Um, parallels between slavery to Christ, you right now, and slavery in the ancient Roman Empire. Exclusive ownership. Slave belonged entirely to those who owned them. <clears throat> we already saw this verse. You were not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Complete submission, which is the defining mark of those who are genuinely converted. First <clears throat> John 2.3 says, if By this we know that we have come to know Jesus, if we keep his commands. Simple. <laughs> How do you know if you're saved? First John 2.3. That's not that easy, but it is a complete submission, the defining mark of those who are genuinely converted. Um, singular devotion, the only, prime, only one primary concern of a slave, to carry out the will of the master. Personal goals, meaningless. Personal ambition, doesn't matter. My own will, doesn't matter. What the slave master wants me to do, that's everything. That is um, limitless in value. And Luke 17 says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy slaves. We're only doing what we've been asked to do. So singular devotion and total dependence. Because their needs were met, they could focus entirely <clears throat> on serving the master. And think about the context of, uh, well here, since the slave was not legally a person, he could own no property and he did not even have power over himself. The context of Philippians, Paul is writing, he knows the slave metaphor, he uses it a lot. When he says, my God will supply all your needs, well, it's because he's a slave master and his slaves need supplies and their needs met so that they can work for him. It's not, I mean, that's the context. If you, if you understand Paul in the day, when he says, God will supply all your needs, well, because that's what slave masters do. They want their slaves to be productive. Um, now, of course, there's, that's a harsh way of saying it, just to make the point, but there's, um, that is the context. So those... And then personal accountability, slaves are entirely accountable to their own owners alone, which is actually a freeing thought if you think about it. What you think of me, doesn't matter. What my slave master thinks of me, matters a lot. That's all that matters. So if you don't like me, or if you put me down, or if you talk about me behind my back, all that matters is what the slave master thinks. So it's actually a freeing thing for this personal accountability to your slave master alone. Um, so these five things are parallels, there's more. But we'll just leave it at that. So, <clears throat> the last 15 minutes, I want to take that kind of whirlwind and just try to let it sink in a little. Just, okay, so how do, how, what's, you know, how do I let this sink in? Um, you know, take home points, as Jeff calls them. Um, and so I just want you to meditate with me on these things. Do you really think of yourself as a slave of Christ? Can you say, I am Christ's slave, completely submitted, no, nothing of my own that I claim as my own. My life is devoted to serving him. That's a tough question. Um, this is a hard message to prepare. It's a hard message to get up here and talk about. Um, hopefully it's a hard message to listen to. Um, if you're listening, it is. It's a hard question, and that's okay. Jesus has a lot of hard words. But analyze yourself. Think about yourself. Examine yourself. Let this be an opportunity. The gospel is not an invitation to become Christ's associate or friend. It is a mandate to become his slave. That's, that's what the gospel call is. Not, not entirely, but 
essentially, that's what it is. And Romans 10.9 says that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your slave master and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. It's part of the salvation experience to confess that Jesus is your slave master. Now, I think the word Lord, you know, we use it so much, maybe it loses its meaning. Hopefully this will help you give it the meaning that it, that is there. You can't be saved if you don't confess that Jesus is your slave master and, and embrace this imagery of slavery. Um, and so, like I said, just let this sink in. <clears throat> what does Jesus require of you? Luke 14, this is the words of Jesus. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Talk about a hard verse. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, there's more. Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't there in the audience when Jesus said that. Oh, wait, I am in the audience because his word speaks to me right now. Um, never mind. Good question. I, I mean, I'm not going to answer this. <laughs> you answer this for yourself. I'm, I mean, I'm working on the answer. This is heavy stuff. Why do you call me slave master, slave master, and you're not an obedient slave? <sighs> All right. <laughs> There's more. Um, <laughs> let's take a turn here. Why is slavery good news? In one of the previous quotes, it said um, that you know, the, the gospel call is one to slavery. Well, gospel means good news. So how, how in the world can it be good news? To be a slave? How, how is that good? That's horrible. I don't want to be a slave. I want my freedom. I want to be in charge of my own life. Well, here's one way, is that slavery abolishes slavery to sin. <clears throat> Romans 6 is a whole chapter devoted to this. It uses the, the metaphor of slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness or to slavery to God. And it kind of weaves that throughout the chapter. You were once slaves of sin. You have been set free from sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The choices are pretty limited. You serve God or you serve sin. There's not a third option. Um, and I think in our culture, we think that we have the freedom to choose a third option when the Bible doesn't give us one. Think if, we were, if you were born into a country in the middle of a civil war, you pick one side or the other. If you're a neutral bystander, both sides will shoot you. I mean, you don't, it, you don't have a choice to say, I'm gonna, you know, I'd like to be born in that country that's not going through civil war right now. You don't have that choice. If you're born into civil war, you pick sides. So you're born into a spiritual war. This life, this world as we know it, is at war. The rebellion of Satan, you are born on Satan's, in Satan's army, slave of sin, serving him with everything that you do, even pretending to be good by your good works before Christ. That's serving Satan and slavery to him. But the Bible says you can be free and you can be a slave of God. That's good news. You don't have to serve Satan and sin. All he cares about is your destruction. Very familiar verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Je in Jesus Christ our Lord. <coughs> there it is again. Slave master God, slave master sin. Those are your choices. Slave master self, <laughs> not an option. 
If you say slate, well, I'm my own slate pastor, that's Satan's side. You're just deceived pretty well. He's got you. So slavery abolishes slavery to sin. That's why it's good news. And slavery, if you think about it, abolishes a particular sin called prejudice. If we all understand that we are slaves, how are you going to treat other people? Very humbly. Philippians 2 talks about that um, in the passage, the context that Pastor Steve read this morning. Um, And so this this is the best part of why slavery is good news. It's because of who the master is. And this really is all that it comes down to. It's slavery to Jesus. Now think about it. Jesus is supreme over all things, and he is good. I mean, again, the windstorm. It was amazing watching the trees, you know, do this and seeing tree trunks snap. I mean, that's, that's an amazing power of the wind. And you compare that to the power of Jesus and the whole universe, and even beyond that, the Bible talks about the universe being a flick of his fingers. That's our slave master. And in the, in the Roman time, the slaves, um, if you were a slave of, say, Caesar, you had a better life than most people in the Roman Empire. And you were respected. If you walked down the street, people would, you know, you'd get respect from people. Caesar who? Our slave master is Jesus. I mean, think about that. The reason why slavery to Jesus is good news, it's because of who Jesus is. That changes everything. Um, he's, he's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of you if you're a believer. And he's good. And he's a good slave master. We're going to look at some specifics here. But in the context of what Pastor Steve read again, where Jesus submitted himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when all of the billions of people that have ever lived and probably the demons and angels as well. It does say every knee, although angels don't have knees, but regardless, the billions of people who are bowing their, themselves to Jesus, whether willingly or by force, you look out over the billions of people, you'll be bowing too, but go with me here. Look at, that's, Jesus, that's my master right there. Slavery to Caesar was an honored position. Slavery to Jesus? I mean, this is good news. That's our master. We get to be with him. We get to serve him. That's amazing. That should blow your mind. That, that's why slavery is good news. It's because of Jesus, our slave master. But there's more. Jesus doesn't pay his slaves. He freely gives them eternal life. Again, Romans 6.23, there's a parallelism here. The wages that sin pays, slave master sin, is compared with the free gift that God gives. Of course, sin and God are in parallel. If you want to slave for sin, okay, he will pay you what you deserve, and you deserve death. Fair enough. But if you receive this free gift of God that you didn't earn, you can't earn, it's eternal life. This slavery to God is freedom. It is true freedom because of who Jesus is as our um, dictator. I mean, that's a bad word too in our culture, but, but because he is so good, it is a glorious, glorious truth. So we need to untwist all the evil that humanity has put into slavery, and we need to not only define our relationship 
by the biblical image of slavery, we need to let the Bible define that slavery image. So it's kind of a twofold thing. There's the slavery image that the Bible used, but it's this version of the slavery image. So don't get caught up in all of the horrors of the slavery of the past. Yes, all that, I'm not going to argue. It's horrible, horrible. But Jesus redeems even that metaphor and makes it into something beautiful and glorious. Don't lose sight of, of that truth. God untwists it and says, no, this is what it's about. This is good news. <clears throat> um, there's a story you're, you're probably familiar with, maybe, where Jesus tells a story. The, the slave master goes off on a journey, leaves three slaves in charge, gives them each some money to, to manage while he's gone. Two of the slaves are faithful and double their money. One slave squanders it, he gets punished. The two slaves that, that were faithful, to each of them he says this. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. <laughs> this slavery that the Bible talks about is not your typical slavery. This, this is, don't get hung up on history. Look at God. Let him define his own relationship to you. I love this quote by D.A. Carson. He's a biblical commentator. The promise of joy bursts the natural limits of the story. He's, he's saying this is a ridiculous ending to the story. This, the end of the story makes no sense. It completely shatters the slavery analogy. Not completely. Um, it, 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 it supersedes it. Let me put it that way. It, it redeems it. Slave masters don't say this to their slaves. But Jesus says it to us. And so it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. We get to enter into the joy of God as his slaves. That's good news. That's an amazing thing. Um, I love that phrase, though, burst the natural limits of the story. It, it just blows it apart. So don't get hung up on historical slavery. And again, Jesus died, our slave master. Slave masters don't die for their slaves. I mean, that's just that's not what you do. So here again, he's redeeming the imagery. Jesus died so we could be adopted into God's family, which we talked about before. Redeemed and lavished with grace. And Ephesians 1 talks about that, that, G, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing, that in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, and that according to the riches of, he, of his grace at the end there, which he lavished upon us. I love that word lavished. I mean, he's just pouring it out on us. Just grace upon grace upon grace. So yes, we're his slaves. Don't forget that. Yes, we're adopted. And, and these two truths, are, they're in harmony. They're not in contradiction to each other. There are some truths here that we need to embrace. There are some truths here that we need to embrace. Let's embrace both and have a biblical relationship with God. And so Jesus, our slave master, died so that we could be adopted into God's family. And um, similar to the other parable, Jesus, his command to you is, hey, slave, be as happy as you can be. That's my command to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do it this way, though. This will maximize your joy, so don't misunderstand me. Um, when he says, I want to maximize your joy, he also gives you instructions on what that means. So he's very, very careful um, how to define joy and happiness. But he wants us to love each other, to fill up our joy, and to be full of his joy. The slavery imagery is like, well, okay, it's not so bad after all, I guess. To be a slave in the household of God. Household of God, that, that, that slave of Caesar thing, they, they were called 
Caesarianoi, a Caesarian would be the, the English um, equivalent, which is the same form in Greek as the Christianoi. It's household of Christ. It's, 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 you know, we've heard of little Christian or follower of Christ or whatever. There's a, there's a, his, there's a context there. Um, those of the household of Caesar were called Caesarians. Those of the household of Jesus, so to speak, slaves of Christ, were called Christians. So it wasn't just a derogatory term like you've probably all heard. It, there's more to it than that. It was, we are slaves of Jesus, not of Caesar. Um, and that was the designation they took upon themselves. We are slaves in the household of Jesus. Um, and here's where um, I want to end with that one. Um, a lot more could be said. This is a huge topic. To do it all in 40 minutes just is not possible. So if there's, you know, more that, I mean, there's lots of, I could have said more. So please just take what I'm saying, analyze it, and let it sink in. But here's where I want to end. And this, I mean, this is one of the, the most personal and, and meaningful, is that think Roman slave market. You want a slave to work your field or to tend your house. or You want, you know, pretty ripped slave if you can afford one. Um, tough, maybe beautiful, good looks. All these, these different factors go into picking a slave. Um, you know, a, a slave master might buy some, a slave with a, an arm cut off. Maybe a slave got in an accident and had an arm cut off. Who's going to want that slave? Well, maybe a slave master who runs the lion pits, maybe just for entertainment to throw you into the lions. I mean, that might be why you're wanted, is to be thrown into the lions. Like Satan, by the way, slave master Satan wants to destroy you. But if you think about it, the Bible describes us all as broken. Um, and here we are in the slave market of sin, and there's all these slave master sins looking at us, and yeah, I'll, I'll pick that one, I'll throw them to the lions, I'll pick that one, I'll destroy them this way. We're sitting there, we're broken. Maybe, you know, there's, there's injuries, maybe, you know, in the, in the analogy, maybe there's some physical blemish, or maybe you're just malnourished, or maybe you have leprosy, or, I mean, imagine a person with leprosy on the slave block. <laughs> Who's going to pay for them? Nobody. Who's going to die for them so that they can be part of his household? <laughs> Jesus. This slavery analogy is it's pretty powerful. Um, so yes, there's evil, but, but don't be distracted by that. Take the evil, right? That's an evil thing that slave masters wouldn't want a person who's diseased. That's evil. Well, untwist that and apply it to Jesus' version of slavery, and it's beautiful. And I bet if you took all the evils of slavery, you could probably do that. Maybe. Um, once when I was um, going through a hard time spiritually, um, struggling with just being down and kind of depressed and just low and feeling kind of, you know, what's, what's the use, spiritually speaking, just really weak. This verse um, was very comforting to me. It's a quote. Jesus is saying it, and he's quoting Isaiah, talking about his ministry. He says, A bruised reed, he, the Messiah, will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Do you ever think of yourself as a bruised reed, maybe dangling in the wind? He's not going to come along and snap you and throw you down. That's not what Jesus came to do. If you're, I often think of my spiritual life as maybe a smoldering wick where, you know, if Jesus, you know, was a normal person, he would, you know, snuff out that wick and say, this is useless. But no, he doesn't do that. He fans that little wick into a flame. And, and, and that's just an amazing truth. 
Um, one of the books that really helped me during that time was this book, um, The Bruised Read, which is on order in our bookstore. Um, trying to promo the bookstore here. But the Puritans, they're heart surgeons, they go deep. And, and I read a couple different Puritans on that idea of despondency or depression or just kind of feeling like God has left you. Amazing book, The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, um, another Puritan. So um, on that note, um, I just want to encourage you in conclusion just, just to let these truths sink in and analyze yourself. I mean, like I said, this is all, it's hard for me to get up here and say this. I mean, it's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, and I just rejoice in the grace of God that he buys the broken slave. I rejoice in the grace of God that I don't always obey him and he forgives me. Um, and so I would just challenge you to, to consider this relationship word that is biblical and see how you need to fit your life into the biblical spirituality rather than picking out verses that you like that fit how you think you want to live. You're a slave of Christ. We all need to start living that way more. <laughs> to be encouraging, we need to start living that way more. If you're, a child of, if you're a child of God, you are a slave of Christ. Let's work together to live that way more. Um, please stand, and I will pray and dismiss you. Dear Father, your word to us is clear. I pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to apply it to our lives. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that he could purchase us and be our Lord and Master. Thank you for the goodness and for redeeming this imagery of slavery and help us to walk in this truth more and more each day as we grow. <clears throat> as we grow. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.